Welcome back to 10 Minutes Before Class. I'm Professor Diascro. What a week last week was, ending with a president-elect Biden and, especially notable, I think, for its historical significance, a vice president-elect Harris. If you've been paying attention to the election news, and I hope that you have, then you know that the president and Republicans in a number of states have not accepted the results of the election. And this isn't particularly surprising. For months, even years really, the president himself has been setting the stage for rejecting election results in this particular election um, that might be unfavorable to him, using claims of election fraud either by voters or by institutions. And I'm not going to get into the details of every claim he's made. In the show notes, I've put several links to websites and articles that I think will give you tons of information about the many lawsuits that are at play now and that may be coming down the pike in the next couple of weeks. We'll have to see. Instead, I thought I'd use this episode as an opportunity to talk about how to make compelling arguments. As I've said before in a previous episode, writing is hard and making compelling arguments is hard too. The idea is to convince others that your argument is one that they should take seriously, at least, and maybe even adopt as their own. It may be really satisfying. It actually is really satisfying (laughs) to preach to our own choirs, to those people who already believe us um, and who are willing to go along with our arguments. But that doesn't have quite the same impact as converting other people to our views. And to do this, you need a few things. You need to know what your primary position is. That would be your thesis or your claim. You need to have some reason for why you have that position, like a hypothesis or a belief or a thought that is the basis for your position. And you need to substantiate the reason with specific evidence, observable, demonstrable information of some kind. And I should note here, by the way, that I use a book by Booth et al. in my class for these elements of argument, and I've put the citation in the show notes. I think it's a terrific resource um, if you're unfamiliar and just learning about how to make arguments, or if you're an experienced argument maker, um, but you also need to be reminded of the fundamentals. So evidence, I think, is the most critical part of this kind of three-part argumentation process. It's also the hardest part in constructing an argument, I think. If we don't have evidence, then all we have in support of our thesis is the reason, which is often a thought or a belief we have, like I said before. So you could have a statement like, I take this position, whatever it is, because I think or believe, you know, A or B to be true. It's not that you know A or B to be true, but that you believe it to be true or you suspect it is true. And then you would just leave it At that, you'd have a claim and a reason. And that might be enough for those who also think as you do. But again, that's just not particularly compelling for those who might think differently about something than you do. So presenting evidence is critical to a compelling argument. But what evidence? And it's a great question. There are many sources and types of evidence that we can use to support any particular argument that we're trying to make. And Usually we make those choices about what kinds of evidence, where we get them, what type they are, what the sources are, 
according to, you know, the topic that we're writing on or arguing about and our thesis. So that's too big of a topic to, to um, manage right now. Today, I'm just going to mention a few related characteristics of evidence that I think help strengthen arguments. So the first is relevant information. That is information that's as on topic or closely related as possible to your thesis. We don't always have the most ideal information that we'd like that speaks directly to our thesis. So sometimes we piece together information that's kind of somewhat related in order to create a a narrative that's as relevant a picture as we we can. Um, And that's okay in lots of circumstances, but it's less compelling than if we had the kind of the more direct information. So the more direct information, the more relevant information, the better. The second characteristic is systematic evidence. Basically, this is information that comes from various sources and maybe different perspectives as well and is collected in a methodical way. We have greater confidence in its value than if it was collected kind of willy-nilly or haphazardly or worse from only a few sources with a particular outcome already in mind. Systematic evidence also allows us to make general statements. We call this kind of generalization about how the world works beyond just the particulars of any single event or experience. In contrast, you might have heard about anecdotal evidence, which people use often in arguments, but it's it's not as it doesn't strengthen arguments as much as systematic evidence does. It's much more individual or personal in nature, and it's collected in a much less formal way. It can be significant for answering some questions or supporting some theses, but on its own, this kind of information doesn't really carry the weight of systematic evidence. It's just much more kind of one-off information. And that's, again, what I tell my students. It's not to say that we can't learn from anecdotes. It just, it, it does prevent us or it should prevent us from making general statements because the information is just so limited and specific. So it's limiting. And the third piece um, is more evidence strengthens arguments. Arguments tend to be more convincing when there's more information supporting a thesis than when there's less information. Pretty straightforward. And particularly, I think this is true if the evidence lines up on one side of an issue compared to another. Okay, so what to make of the current arguments about the election? I'm going to focus on just a couple related arguments, and they're more complex than I'm making them. This will be a little oversimplified in the interest of time, but hopefully you'll get the general idea. So the first of the two arguments is what I'm just calling the election fraud argument. The claim, remember the first part of the three parts of an argument, the claim is generally that there is widespread election fraud. We might tack on to the end of this claim that the fraud has affected the outcome of the election. And this is a really serious claim. No one wants to see election fraud in the United States. No one wants to see a democracy that has election fraud as part of its election processes. Okay, the reason given for this claim is reports of perceived irregularities, including marking ballots, you know, how ballots are are marked by voters the timing of the counting, how long it's taken, and literally like, you know, when you're allowed to count the ballots that come in 
curing ballots. That would be rectifying mistakes that have been made on ballots, um, observing tallies, and who makes election-related policies. The evidence provided in support of that reason, and you can read more about this in the articles with some details there, I won't provide the details, but they include a few reports by individuals that they were either witness to or they heard about some instances of these irregularities, like being asked to use a Sharpie to complete the ballot or hearing that some mail-in ballots were backdated or that curing ballots happened improperly or it took too much time. And so if you think back to what evidence makes an argument compelling, you'll see that most of these examples would be relevant to the claim, but there's nothing systematic about these pieces of evidence. And in fact, notably, they're all made by Republicans, no Democrats, and only in some states, not in other states. And there's very few of them. If they're anecdotal and only a few, then the likelihood that they've affected the outcome of the election is also pretty slim. So this argument is just not particularly compelling. The second argument is what I call the outcome argument. And it's related to the first one for sure, but it's, a, it's different in, in, its, um, in its particular focus. This claim is that Trump is the actual winner of the election. The president has made this claim several times in tweets and other places. The reason given for the claim that Trump is the actual winner is that he has the most legal votes. And the implication is there is that the that election fraud is the reason that Biden has falsely been named the victor. So then we ask, what's the evidence for this? And it's generally the same as I mentioned before, because it has to do fundamentally with election fraud. But the evidence has all the same issues that I mentioned above. It also may include much more specific evidence, like related to uh, rejection of mail ballots in general that mail ballots are not, or mail-in voting is not a is not an appropriate way of voting. And it also may include concerns about the role of state Supreme Courts and election boards in making decisions about election policy and election rules. But notably here, mail-in ballots have always been part of elections. This is these are not this is not new and it's not specific to this election. And there has never been any systematic problem identified with mail-in ballots. Have there been some problems? Perhaps, but not anything systematic and widespread. And there's no legal rule about whether courts or other non-legislature institutions um, can make election decisions, at least not yet. I think that this is something that legal experts think the court may get on to sometime soon, but it's not yet decided about the constitutionality of these other kinds of institutions making the rules that would um, dictate how we vote and how elections take place. So these pieces of evidence are not that compelling either. Because of this, then, the argument as a whole is just not very convincing. And it's made more problematic when you think just a little deeper about it. If election fraud is the reason that Biden has won and Trump has lost, that suggests that the fraud is all one-sided if it exists, which reveals not only that there's a little bit of conspiracy thinking here 
okay, maybe more than a little, but that it's largely motivated by the president's belief that he should have won. In other words, his loss seems to be the evidence for the claim that he won, right? He should have won. So the evidence for him winning is that he lost, right? And that's not evidence. That's just his preferred outcome. He would prefer to win. Again, not compelling evidence. So we'll see how all of this plays out in the political and legal world during the next few weeks. But it's always worth picking apart the arguments that folks put forward and examining them critically. And it's definitely worth some time to think a bit about what evidence we would need or want to see about election fraud or even about who wins and who loses in either this election or any other election that would make the arguments more convincing. Just a good exercise. So pay attention, take time to think critically about what you hear, try to avoid your own biases when you can and your own preferred outcomes in elections, that's hard, when you're examining these and other arguments you hear. And do the same as you construct your own arguments. So that's a wrap on this episode. I hope you learned something useful. If you did, please leave a rating and review where you listen to podcasts and be sure to join me next time. Until then, be safe and be well and think critically always.